as you recall, months and months ago, it was leaked strategically in the journal that, that Murdoch was trying to roll up Fox Corp and News Corp into one single entity. And only now did it occur to me that that's probably what he was trying to do as far back as then to make it even harder for the heirs to depopulate Lachlan from the situation. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, September 25th, which means it's Media Monday. Today, John Kelly and I discuss life at Fox and News Corp after Rupert Murdoch and the sibling rivalries that could flare succession style once the aging Murdoch finally goes to that great right-wing newsroom in the sky. We also discussed the end of the New York Times sports section, which published its final edition just a few days ago. Should it be mourned, or is this actually just a no-brainer move for a modern media company like the Times? We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode, Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Monday, everybody. If it's Monday, yes, it's Yom Kippur. It's also Media Monday. I'm joined, of course, by the boss man, John Kelly, to talk all things media. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, Peter. You know, this is our first show that we've taped since we found out that there's a drinking game that's been created about uh, Media Monday. So I think you and I are, are going to be a little extra sensitive about how we communicate with each other today because we don't want to uh, offend anyone or, or embarrass ourselves. Yeah, a, a loyal listener to the powers that be daily uh, named James Went. He wrote to Fritz at Puck.News last Thursday and this went around the whole, the whole company on the Slack. 
a drinking game based on this show and all of my wonderful guests on the show. A few examples. Drink when Peter mentions either the 2008 or 2012 presidential campaigns. That's a, not totally accurate. I talk about all campaigns. This was a good one. John Kelly hits you with some private equity jargon. Accretive wealth creation vehicle. Equitized definitional business model. Optionality. Terminal value of the asset. Will <laughs> Cohan casually name drops the CEO of an obscure financial firm the way most people talk about NFL quarterbacks. Someone describes anything as being, quote, August. Peter talks about <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was a little uh, I was a little shaken by this. I felt like I needed a personality transplant. Uh, I got to get some new bits, I guess, John. Yeah, I guess if you do enough of these, you start to reveal your true self. Um, but I, and I'm going to lead into it. We're taping this on a Sunday afternoon, and I'm coming in hot off of the Jets' tragic loss here. And I, I've been texting everyone I know in and around the NFL to try and get some inside information because I feel like the, the Jets' locker room is about to turn into a mutiny as, uh, as all the players and coaches uh, begin to rebel against Zach Wilson. Indeed, that, that is not the story of our time, nor is it what people expect from Puck, but uh, it is the background noise in my life as we prepare for Media Monday. So everyone, three, two, one, drink. I was under the impression that Aaron Rodgers was to be this uh, veteran locker room presence, even while injured, and he could help steer this team off the field through their struggles, but apparently he's off doing ayahuasca somewhere. <laughs> I haven't had a chance to ask you about the big media story, maybe of, of the month, uh, which is Rupert Murdoch last week, uh, it's been about a week, stepping down from Fox, entering a sort of like emeritus role. He said he wasn't going anywhere. You know, a lot of the initial coverage around this was he's stepping down. It's clear he's still going to be involved. It's also sort of obvious that he is planting a flag with Lachlan to take over the company uh, and, you know, his other kids be damned. Beyond the whole succession drama here, do you have any like thoughts on any meaningful changes to Fox that, that could come about under Lachlan or is it just going to be on cruise control like will it tonally be the same they're going to still be kind of populist conservative or are they going to become more of a quote-unquote moderate network whatever that means uh, but also with all the other properties i mean do you see any yeah. big changes on the horizon the thing to zoom out and remember is that murdoch essentially walked away legally from from two assets it, it's uh, fox corp and and news corp i think fox corp's worth about 15 billion news corp's worth somewhere between you know, 10 and 12, depending on the trading day. Fox Corp, as you know, is Fox News and all the sports assets and, and some other entities. News Corp is the Wall Street Journal and um, Dow Jones and Simon Schuster. And it's professionally run by Robert Thompson, you know, by a CEO outside the family. Here was the epiphany I had uh, days uh, after it all went down. And it's it's piggybacking a bit on our partner, Matt Bellany's immediate, very smart yeah. piece about how Murdoch's decision here was uh, a way to sort of ensconce Lachlan in the business to make it harder for the the three other elder siblings to, to vote him out as we've all as anyone who works in media at a, at a certain proximity has been hearing about for years about, you know, the the reality of the trust that James and Liz and Prue would outnumber Lachlan and either defenestrate him or, or you know, sell it or, or do whatever number of things. But here was the, the, what occurred to me. As you recall, months and months ago, it was leaked strategically in the journal that, that Murdoch was trying to roll up Fox Corp and News Corp into one single entity. And only now did it occur to me that, aha, you know, a Apple hitting me on the head. 
that that's probably what he was trying to do as far back as then to make it even harder for the heirs to depopulate Lachlan from the situation. If, if Lachlan had been presumably put in charge of this entity, whatever it would have traded at, the Murdoch kids would have had more significant economic interests tied up in it, and it would have been a lot harder to move their brother at, no matter how much they hated the politics of Fox News, which, as they've argued for years, as, as James argued for years, and I've heard him argue this, and, and, and it, it's true to some degree, Fox News makes a billion plus in profit every year. Nothing to sneeze at at all, obviously. But it's yeah. a, a small percentage of the free cash flow of Fox Corp and, and of both companies uh, together. It's only four times what they're paying Tom Brady over the course of that contract when he finally gets into the booth. So it, it occurred to me that was what he, Murdoch was probably up to all along. That didn't go through. Investors didn't want it. And in the end, this was the sort of plan B to ensconce Lachlan in that role. And, and then the next thought that uh, occurred afterwards, and, and this actually is uh, really well articulated in Bill Cohen's piece from Sunday, which touches on Murdoch and some of Iger's troubles too, is that that would have been a catastrophic mistake. If you, you look at that strategy, it's basically been employed to a T by the Redstone family, which were once the uh, largest voting shareholder in a company called Viacom and a company called, called CBS, both of which were worth about you know 15 to 22 million billion dollars, excuse me, before they were crunched together over a couple of years and lawsuits and a defenestrated CEO here and there, and now trade for, can you believe this, about $8 billion. I checked that today just before we got on the show. And that's a stunning, historic, like, you know, I guess drink on three anti-wealth accretive event. I mean, it's, just, it's extraordinary how much <laughs> Wall Street hates that company and how much value Sherry Redstone has destroyed um, and Bob Bakish uh, has destroyed. So good on Murdoch for listening to the market and being outvoted on that one because it would have made it a lot easier for the siblings to root out Lachlan one day if you were overseeing a company that Wall Street analysts didn't think should exist in its present form, and it would have been a lot easier to take out the CEO. Speaking of the drinking game too, I think uh, James needs to add uh, defenestration to the to the list, and uh, we've already ha heard that word twice now, so that would be two drinks if that was on the drinking game <laughs> list. I want to read some of Bill's piece though right here. He says, of course, just because Rupert is turning the chairmanship of both companies over to Lachlan, no one believes Rupert is either giving up control of Fox or News Corp. He remains the controlling shareholder of both companies. And if he's to be believed that he remains in good health at 92, we can expect him to continue micromanaging. But Bill writes, when he dies, which alas is inevitable for all of us. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Bill. Then I expect all hell to break out in a very succession kind of way. Game that scenario out. Why, why would this turn into succession bumper cars when Rupert dies? Well, the first part of it is unequivocally true, right? I think what, what Lachlan has proven to be the best at among the four kids is managing his father. You know, it, we now know, and uh, I, I've read part of the Michael Wolf book, but I didn't yeah. need to read that to understand it. L Lachlan is not an intellectual, neither is Rupert. You know, and I think Rupert always uh, resented that James tried to sort of be a half intellectual, half sort of, um, you know, modern. He, he was raised by like McKinsey consultants the way that Louis XIV was raised by Cardinal Richelieu, you know? Like it was just this sort of like umbilical quality. <laughs> and I think that Murdoch always thought that, we, that he was a little too pretentious. But among the other siblings, I don't know how much alignment there there actually is uh, so much as there is like, a, a genuine feeling of, you know, that they detest Fox News. But, and I'm not trying to be contrarian here, 
they've all been very enriched by the politics of their father for a very, very long time. At, at no point did someone say, I'm going to rip up my own trust and I don't want to inherit any money that's been created through, uh, you know, a wealth accretive event, uh, you know, drink uh, owing to the, the populist media entities, you know, run by the news corporation. So I'm not calling anyone a hypocrite here. I'm just saying that people find a way to to live on the good side sometimes. And it may be possible that they actually use this as leverage for a period of time, but don't necessarily act on it either. And it's also possible, too, that Lachlan, who, um, you know, had this sort of mid-career timeout where he moved to Australia for a couple of years, is um, actually not that interested in running these companies forever and would like just to be a rich guy. You know, don't forget, Rupert bequeathed each of these grown children $2 billion, which, um, you know, you invest that with Goldman Wealth or JP Morgan, and that's paying out, boy, I don't know the math, probably 6% a year. Not bad. You could live on that. But all that said and done, I imagine that they all are filled (laughs) with resentment, and this is going to get incredibly ugly. And uh, and Lachlan knows how to dig in. Uh, One of the things that made him Murdoch's son was that he was a fighter and if you think it through all the the major scandals rebecca brooks and phone hacking and ales lachlan never batted an eye he was willing to throw anyone uh in front of the railroad that he needed to and i don't think he worries at all about taking on his three siblings in any way shape or form uh so yeah you know cue the trumpets this is going to be a um a blowout when it happens. But Rupert seems like spry enough in 92. So um, we're probably going to wait a little while for this. He certainly does. He's got two or three more marriages left in him for sure. Uh, we're going to go to a break and, and come back and talk about the death of the New York Times sports section. But before that, I have a fun piece of James Murdoch trivia, John. And as a New York mm. boy, I'm hoping you'll guess this. Uh, James Murdoch founded a record label. Raucous back Records. In the Raucous Records. There you go. Good job. I was a big Raucous the, Records um, fan. Yeah, that was Philip Quelli and, and Most Def. And one of the most telling moments of succession is that, uh, God, is it even in the pilot? It might, it might be. It's in season one where Kendall is in the back of his like S-class with his Air Jordans on and he's listening to some you know very loud hip hop. And I think that that's a, a direct sort of attempt to make fun of James for... Uh, you know, his, his early record mogul dumb. But as I recall, Rupert bought Raucous. He ended up, he also bought yes. one of Elizabeth's companies too. So this is, you know, you know, not, not all the, uh, not all their wealth is, is totally pure. Yeah. I think that he might've created the, the market for Raucous. Yeah. No, a news corp, I think eventually acquired Raucous, which is probably not what most F and Quali had in the back of their minds when they were writing Black Star. But it is an amusing piece of trivia about the Murdoch clan. All right, John, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, sorry, guys, we're talking sports. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. 
With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be. netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right. I found that on Etsy. It's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back to The Powers That Be, everybody. I'm joined, of course, by John Kelly. John, we're trying to come up with ideas to talk about the podcast today. And, you know, you, you floated the idea of just talking about the Sturm und Drang at the New York Times mm -hmm. sports section. You know, that's your former stomping ground, the, the gray lady. Basically, after the New York Times acquired The Athletic, the writing was on the wall that, you know, eventually this would be the sports <laughs> product that the New York Times would run with. And they're closing the sports section. And that's got people at the New York Times pissed off. Both the Guild there, which says the company didn't communicate these things very well and it's unfair, but also just like old timers who, you know, pine for the days of Red Smith and George Vesey, who are like, I can't believe mm -hmm. we're closing the hallowed New York Times sports section, which look, I mean, I read it a lot growing up um, and I, I always wanted to be a sports writer and I, I I'm surrounded in my office right here by great books, by great sports writers. But I haven't really spent a lot of time with the New York Times sports section in recent years, in part because there's so many different ways to get compelling sports content, especially on your phone. And the sort of long thought pieces that uh, inhabit the New York Times sports section, they just like never really found a place in the modern media ecosystem. And beyond that, like the Washington Post sports section is still like a local paper. Like they cover the mm -hmm. commanders and they cover a, a baseball game between St. Albans and Dorstown Prep. 
the New York Times sports section doesn't really do any of that stuff either. So is it actually a good idea to close the sports section? You know, it's funny. People hate us talking about sports, but we have to remember that for the intellectual sort of, you know, landed class of New York, the New York Times is the ultimate sports team. And and the the, the moves made by management are totally akin to, to the, the decisions you see a general manager or, or an owner make in the NFL. And this was unequivocally, you know, the manifestation of writing on the wall and, and the smart move. And it's actually sort of bewildering to me to see the sentiment around this. Like, let's be honest here. The New York Times sports section for decades was a shadow of itself. Intentionally, it was underinvested in because it didn't make sense. It, it wasn't a part of the, the financial mission of the operation. And uh, I remember, you know, certainly when I worked there, uh, you know, they didn't know how to make even the simplest changes, removing box scores or or getting rid of the standings, things that, that anyone who cared at all about these things would be checking on ESPN.com or, or somewhere else. And over time, they began to invest less and less and sort of nationalize the coverage. And no one knows this better than the Salzburgers, because if you recall, A.G. Salzburger, when he was planted into the New York Times newsroom uh, you know, during his sort of ascent to management and the publisher's job, did a lot of work for um, the sports section. You know, he'd, he'd do these sort of um, leisurely pieces on aerial, you know, kite diving or something like that. Um, just, you know, sort, sort of vanity pieces. And and Sam Dolnick, <laughs> who's his cousin, who's also uh, on the masthead, and, and a great guy, was the deputy sports editor for a time there as well um, in, the, in the early 2000s. So these guys knew that there was no way to save this other than major investment, which I think wasn't really in the cards. And there's no question that the New York Times, in order to, which is a publicly traded company, even if it's a dual class company, in order to, to remain economically viable, had to make tough decisions. It made, it made tough decisions when it got rid of automobile. It certainly um, changed its cultural coverage when it, it got into more product-based stuff like watching, and then it, it moved food over to cooking. Like, you know, it's a for-profit business, as, as Arthur used to always say when he was in charge, and people actually kind of laughed at it because they didn't think it was, but it, it is the truth. So if you pay $550 million, which is significantly more more than any other buyer that I'm aware of, significantly more, you are going to incorporate this. And amazingly, astonishingly, the Times found a way to not lay anyone off. I don't know how. And so, of course, they're going to make The Athletic, which apparently they've tripled in um, subscriptions in the short time they've owned it, a, a viable product. And this gave me some nostalgia, for better or worse. I remember I did work at The Times around the time that they published this piece, Snowfall. Peter, do you yep. remember this? Okay, so this I mean, was this like... was treated. This was treated like it was the greatest thing that had ever happened to journalism at oh the my time, God. Well, and, and, and totally, and, and, it was, especially oh. at a moment when, like, at, at a moment when a lot of news organizations, I, I guess I was at CNN at the time, was, was one of them, were trying to navigate like the new digital, you know, universe and trying to pivot from the the old ways of doing things to new formats, and it was just like. Okay, I'm opening Safari here on my computer and just scroll. Oh, I already have it open. Down. Hold on, I already have it open. I already have select lines. Yes, I was preparing for this <laughs> podcast. Okay. So I was at the Times. I was an editor. I was, you know, uh, in in short pants when Jill Abramson was the executive editor, and you know, Jill's a very sort of controversial figure there, Nixon like in some ways. Where there are people who think that looking back, she did some great things that she was underappreciated for, but was completely polarizing. And Snowfall was a piece that internally was kicked around everywhere. I worked at the Times Magazine. We didn't want to publish it because it was incredibly poorly written. You know, it had, had lines like, snow filled her mouth. She caromed off things she never saw, tumbling through a cluttered canyon like a steel marble, 
falling through pins <laughs> in a pachinko machine. I mean, just stuff like this, like unbearable, you know, to people who care about the language. And uh, and so they published it online with this like very cool 3D background. And I think that this one, like some, this one, this one, a, a Pulitzer, I think the way that like Dances with Wolves won an Oscar, you know, that like just everyone was, was sort of hoodwinked into thinking, oh, this is so good when anyone who read this, like, oh, this is, you know, it's, it's, it's about a tragedy. It's very scary, but... Um, this is so overblown. The prose is so purple. And in Inside the Times, the people who were producing it didn't even really like it. But the, the, the graphics oh. team was led by this guy named Steve Duanis, who still works there. They turned it into a rousing success. And Jill thought, the internet has been solved. We figured it all out. And we figured out the future of sports. <laughs> yeah. This is what it's going to be. It's going to be snowfall, left, right, and center. And they, they did try to replicate it. And guess what? That doesn't work because in, in the world that we live in now, which is direct-to-consumer, which where you live off of the LTV to CAC ratio – this is not this is an event product and it's cool but it's not going to convince someone to have a habitual relationship with the new york times it's sporadic it's a one-off what convinces people to have a relationship with the new york times is what the athletic does it is a fandom niche based business inside the athletic you know on the outside you see only sports when you go a level deeper you realize it's based on unique fandoms the cleveland browns the buffalo sabers if they still exist i, I hate hockey not just the knicks but the, the warriors people who care about these teams you know people who care about free agency people who care about niche parts of sports the athletic has absolutely personnel staffed up these erogenous zones and that's why they've been able to be successful and they've, they spend a ton to acquire customers i think that there's some sort of triage unit that goes into to how they run performance but with the times engine they've had an incredible year and that works for the business and as arthur said it is a business so as we you know reclaim our role as the sort of like monday morning quarterback armchair gm for the new york times this was the no-brainer, very difficult move where AG and Meredith and Joe Kahn did not listen to the sentiment and emotions of the newsroom or their colleagues. They did what was really smart and what uh, Wall Street would want, and, um, and they made the right decision. No doubt about it. Yeah, so just to get the timeline right here, I think we talked about this on the podcast earlier this year. They announced in June, I believe, they were going to shutter the sports section. Yes. Monday, last Monday, was the actual final day. The New York Times Guild published a ceremonial front page final edition uh, for the sports section. And the headline is, Say It Ain't So. There's a column by you know Harvey Araton talking about it and, and George Vesey as well. And I don't want to be anti-sentimental, Peter, but like this is yeah. one of the great tragedies of this part of our profession is this just absolute addiction to nostalgia. Of course, the Times did incredible things. You know, the, the CTE scandal, doping, like you could go on and on and on. But if the business as construed currently doesn't make sense, you have to move forward and try and figure out the new thing. And you can't view moving forward to figure out the new thing as a, a sign of fatalism or defeat. That's why journalism spent a decade on its heels as new technologies and new companies were created. And if you think about the new companies, we were, we were BSing about this before we started taping. When you think about the innovative sports companies that have been created, sports media companies, in the last 10 years, I mean, the list goes on. Grantland, The Ringer, Front Office Sports, The Defector, Barstool, whether you like it or not, you know, The, the Athletic, Bleacher Report. I could think of a half dozen others. Oh, yeah. And and there's also, I mean, like speaking of niche, there's also, there's just like entire brands that have been built around like um 
high school basketball, you know, like because people mm-hmm. want the latest and best clips of like whichever blue chip recruits are coming up. I mean, there's just so many different pieces of content coming at you all day long when you log on to your phone or your, or your computer that it's just like, uh, it does, it didn't feel, the New York Times sports section just long ago stopped feeling essential. Yeah. Let me let me leave you with one thought though that, that occurred to me as this drama or crisis was playing out. A million years ago in the early 2000s, I remember I lived in South Williamsburg and it was when the Knicks were at their you know what, what we thought was the absolute worst, but was you know the, the sort of the, the beginning of, of the of the lost decade. Was that the and Marbury era? It was, um, yeah, it was the the Isaiah Thomas era. Yes, it was. They were just about to ship off Marbury, and the team was just filled with uh, albatrosses. It's, you know, Steve Francis was passing through at some point. We had, um, <laughs> uh, I think, I think Eddie Curry wasn't yet on the team, and you know, this was just you know the Isaiah Thomas experiment, yeah, and. Yeah. There was a great, a truly great sports writer for the Times named Howard Beck, who yes. covered, yes, right, who covered the Knicks in all their gory infamy. And yeah. I was here for it, and so was everyone else. But at some point, it got so bad, I mean, I'm not even sure if we won 20 games that season, that the Times moved Howard off the beat to basically cover anyone but the Knicks, because the Knicks were so terrible, and it was meant to be a sort of cute sign you know, the same way that Ariana Huffington only covered Donald Trump in the entertainment section. But uh, anyone who loved sports knew that that was completely, and who knew about business, frankly, who cared about the media strategy, knew that was completely the wrong decision, right? Anyone who cared about the Knicks or New York sports wanted to see this to the very bottom. It was the New York Post secret. You were so engaged <laughs> that you didn't care if the Knicks won or lost. And, and, you didn't, and you didn't want write-ups about what was going on on the court. You could see that with your own two eyes at MSG. You wanted to know, how everyone hated everyone inside the locker room. You wanted to know about the, the beef in the front office. You wanted to know about who Dolan trusted and who he didn't, what free agents they were trying to hire, what if they were going to be able to get Donnie Walsh to come in to, to replace Isaiah, all these things. And the time, it just wasn't, those topics weren't deemed times enough. They weren't timesian, you know? And to me, that was the um, decisions like that were the sort of the fatal flaw and the decision to acquire the athletic no matter the price and integrate it is a sign that, this management team means business, and I bet there are other parts of the operation right now that are genuflecting towards the past that you know could be re- replaced or, or moved aside one day by um, by more aggressive M and A opportunities. Not immediately. Times only has about I think you know five hundred million on its balance sheet to make these kinds of investments, but I think that's where the wind is heading. Yeah, and and, and just one other thing before we go: the kinds of pieces that were being written for the New York Times sports section were features, trends, culture, investigations. The The story on the front page of the final edition of the sports section uh, was a piece about an Afghan soccer player. And the headline was, they shot at her, they forced her from her home. She won't stop fighting for girls. And it's a profile of uh, Kalita Popal, who's a Afghan soccer player on the national team. That piece touches on a lot of different political, cultural issues. It could be slotted in to another section, like an investigation about uh, wrongdoing at FIFA, steroids, like Larry Nasser, like whatever. Those things are all news. They are media. They are style. And so it's not like they're going to stop writing completely about sports forever. It's just like those those things feel like they could go in other sections of the newspaper. The stuff that doesn't exist anymore is what you just said, like Nick's beat writing. <laughs> Uh, and so I think in that sense, it's like time to move on. And fittingly, I just looked up 
Hardback. He is at the ringer now. He is. They just because his name his name was familiar. All right, John. Thank you so much, man. Have a good week. Thanks for joining me. All right. See you in the Slack, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.